Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I actually think we've been building to a truth crisis of equating facts and numbers and truth. Facts are relevant and, and numbers are relevant but they don't add up to the truth of a human being or of, of well-being. Hello. Welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, first, thank you. I am grateful to all of you for trusting me on the Jaron Lanier Jaron, God, I still can't say his name. Jaron Lanier? I can't remember because he let me say it however I wanted. Uh, podcast last week, I came out and I said, I cannot describe it to you, but you should download it and listen to it. And a huge number of you did. It's been one of our more popular ones and a lot of people really liked it. So I appreciate you letting me go into the weird a little bit and and following me there. Uh, and I'm glad so many of you have enjoyed it so much. If you've not listened to that one, definitely give that a try. <laughs> My guest this week is Krista Tippett. And Krista Tippett, many of you probably know her. She is host of the really wonderful radio show and podcast on being where she has conversations with scientists with spiritual seekers with people of faith with activists she has created a space for discourse and dialogue that is unlike really anywhere that exists elsewhere in the media it is kinder uh, it's more open it's more searching uh, there are fewer answers and a lot more questions in a way I really admire she was awarded in 2014 the National Humanities Medal by President Obama uh, for this work and I've been wanting to have her on the podcast for a bit because I think there's a lot to learn from her uh, Tippett is a, an interesting background you'll hear a bit about it in our podcast but but she grew up she's a political background she grew up uh, went to East Germany worked on a diplomatic mission, an American diplomatic mission there. So as part of the Cold War, was in some ways a Cold Warrior. And so she kind of had these two halves to her early life, the seeker and the, the person who wanted to ask these unanswerable questions, and and the wonk, the, the policy analyst, the person talking about nuclear arms treaties across the former Soviet Union. And, and she went in one direction and not the other. And it's a direction I'm thinking a lot about lately. Um, anybody who listens to this podcast knows that I am concerned about this moment and concerned about whether or not we are able to ask the right questions, whether or not we have a language for some of the conversations that need to be had, whether or not we're able to participate uh, in this era in politics without being infected by it, rendered toxic by it. I don't know if I'm the only one, but but I definitely feel that trying to be a commentator and trying to say things clearly right now 
comes at the cost sometimes of mirroring a kind of energy that I think is pretty un- unpleasant uh, and and indecent. Uh, and so the question of how to do this for four years or possibly, you know, if it comes to it for eight years without becoming completely part of it, without just deepening the divisions that exist in our society already is one that's on my mind quite a bit. Uh, in, in her books, in her work, in her podcast, in her radio show, Tippett, I think, has created a space where very, very hard issues get discussed in a way that does not send people running to their respective sides, in a way that retains a sense of the humanity of everyone involved. And I think there's a lot for me to learn from her. I I hope there's a lot for all of us to learn from her. And so here she is. Krista Tippett, welcome to the podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. So I wanted to begin with an inversion of a question you often ask. You often begin your interviews by asking your guests to to relate their spiritual backgrounds. I'd like to hear a little bit about your political background. <laughs> oh, that's a great question. Because actually, I had a very political background. You know, I often t- speak about my grandfather, the Southern Baptist preacher. But my father was a, a political animal. He was actually a political operator in small town. Well, not just in my small town, in Oklahoma, um, which... It's so interesting. You know, I was growing up in the 60s and I was born in 1960, so 60s and 70s. It was not a, I mean, we didn't have the language of red state then, but it was not a red state. Um, it was it was very democratic. Now, at, when I went to Brown, when I went to the East Coast to college, I, I would say, you know, the Oklahoma Democrats who I knew were far more, to, far to the right of uh, Massachusetts Republicans. Um but they were Democrats. So, it was, you know, it's, it's that it's, it's actually in this moment um, in our life politically, um, my kind of upbringing in Oklahoma has been meaningful to me in a way that it hasn't been for many generations because I, I kind of, you know, fled that. But, yeah, it was, uh, you know, my father was a big Kennedy Johnson supporter. And, in fact, my first memory that I that I recall was of the assassination. I was born on the night Kennedy was elected president, kind of in the wee hours of the night as the returns came in. And I was always told by my Democrat father and all of his Democrat operatives around him that, you know, that I had been the good luck charm for this fantastic president. And my first memory is is that day of Kennedy's assassination and just the and it was in Dallas, not that far away. Um and the, just the utter despair of the adults around me. Um, and, you know, the, the kind of uh, the, 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 the social uh, evolution of the 60s, the peace movement, the flower children, the hippies, that stuff didn't really make its – I don't feel like it made its way all to my – made its way to my small town in Oklahoma. But what did, you know, if I think of the defining political memories of my childhood, it was, it was all those assassinations, you know, those assassinations of these great political figures and growing up in a democratic family as I did, you know, the figures who we were looking to um, for inspiration. So that's, that's kind of how I start it's such, about that question. It's interesting some of the threads you have there because I think they, they hit something really big, which is... 
If you go back to that period, um, that period where you have Oklahoma Democrats who are well to the right of Massachusetts Republicans, <laughs> like that's like this period where when you listen to political scientists talk, I mean, it's this golden age period of low polarization, right? The, the parties aren't mm-hmm. polarized or not that far apart. And yet I always think that the, the political tumult of that era where leader oh. after leader after leader is being literally gunned down in the streets. Unimaginable. Like, we cannot fathom what that was like. And to experience that as a child, it was so dramatic. And so now we're here. I mean, I th- in some ways it's a, I don't want to say it's an optimistic thing because that was a terrible period in many ways. But when you wake up and the bad thing that's happening is you do have a kind of out-of-control president tweeting crazy things. Like, that. that's bad. But it's yeah. not yeah. a series of political assassinations of the president among other key civic leaders. And and I, I just think that's a, a kind of instability that we have not forgotten, but we have wrapped it into a much neater story. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So you went from there and you were then involved in, I think, what was sort of the, the big overarching political story of that era, which is the communist um, transition. Yeah. How, how did you go to how did you go to Berlin? How did you end up working on that? Um, so I fled from Oklahoma um, for my life. Just, you know, very, I mean, in some ways it was an interesting story. And in some ways it was a story that has been repeated since time immemorial. And I was in this tiny little town and I wanted to be in the big world out there. Um, and I was very lucky that I got out the way I did. Um and really had not thought, I mean, not, not, not traveled to Europe, not gone places, had not thought about the big world out there. Um, you know, this is, this is something else, you know, time is, time and change are so, have so much longer arcs than we also, especially than we think these days. And, you know, there are things about my childhood that are now just coming to fruition now, like how far away these places have been psychologically um, forever and, you know, really disinterested in the, in, in the globe, you know, even as we were this great world power, this superpower. Um, in some ways that never settled in many Americans' lives and in many American places. So I was from one of those places. But but then I was just, you know, it was like once I got outside Oklahoma, I was fascinated with the world. I was, I absolutely was a political person. I was not a religious person at all, especially once I got away to um, to college. And Brown had this bizarre exchange program with East Germany. And I just got, you know, that was, that was the fault line of the Cold War. And the Cold War was the great, crisis of that era. And you were talking a minute ago about how there's something strangely hopeful about thinking how how dark the dark side of the 60s was. Um, and there's also something strangely hopeful for me. And I mean, I absolutely live with this all the time. It was unimaginable when I got out of, you know, and when I got out of college in the 80s that um, that the Cold War would end, you know, that it would end in our lifetime that the Soviet Union wouldn't be with us almost forever. And and also we really lived with this almost an expectation that those nuclear missiles were going to go off one night while we slept. 
Um, so I, you know, I gravitated towards that. That I mean, it was it was an incredible drama, and it 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 felt like the fault line of the world. And so yeah, Brown had an exchange program with East Germany, so I went behind the Iron Curtain, and uh, and then I once I had done that, I kind of had this strange experience of going to communist Germany before I knew capitalist Germany. So so having been having been inside. Um, that world of our, you know, of our great enemies, um, but people who we felt we were advocating for um, as kind of the, the bearers of freedom and democracy and capitalism. Um, I then got to know West Germany. But when I went to West Germany and to Berlin, then eventually, because I wanted to kind of be in the middle of it all again, um, what I had that was really special is that I did had been in the East, which wasn't an experience that like West Germans my age could have. What was your first impression of East German society? Oh, it's so interesting to come from a place that no longer exists, right? Like it is now a vanished place. I used to get so despairing about the cliche of East Germany. And it was mostly through people going from West Berlin to East Berlin. And you went from a place that was high-powered and, um, you know, full of neon lights and everything was bright and colored and built up and new and shiny. And it took time when you went from that west of Germany to east of Germany, which was kind of the west of the world to the east of the world, to for your eyes to adjust. And what people would often say is it was bleak and gray. <laughs> that was always the language. And and that was that was true especially before your eyes had adjusted. But of course, people are fascinating and colorful. <laughs> and, you know, in way, in both ways that are superficial and, and, and then like below those layers of, you know, what they look like or what they're wearing. So, so I just was fascinated with that, with that human drama that in some ways had all kinds of contours that were very strange to me. I mean, just the lack of choice in that place um, at every level, like what color you would paint your room, much less what countries you could travel to. But then, on the other hand, it was the same human drama that there is everywhere. People fell in love. They fell out of love. They died. They raised their children. They struggled to know what they want, whether their lives had meaning. Um, and that was interesting being in Berlin because it was kind of a big social experiment. So you saw people in these completely, utterly different worlds of economy and politics and society and material, uh, you know, what was materially present and what was present in terms of choice. And so to see to see what was different and what actually always remained the same. And, you know, the really important things remain the same. Something you've written about in a couple of your books when talking about that time is sensing or, or feeling that there was somehow more human urgency or drama or, or, or something more vibrant and alive in East Germany than in West Germany. Yeah. And, yeah. and, I, I, and I've, I'm, I'm curious about that. I'm curious when you look back on that and think on it, was that a, a – a byproduct of just seeing the struggle and, and, and feeling the drama of it? Or was there something about having choices limited that changed where people put their energies? I mean, when you look at that now, because obviously you, you, you've chosen to live in America and, you know, with a lot yeah. of choice and, and my sense is you think more free societies are better. But when you look at what 
seemed more human there to you now, what lessons are there in it for a kind of rich, free-ish society? Well, it's, it is this paradox of us, of our species, that we do come more alive when we struggle. Boy, there's a real balance in talking about this um, because you don't want to glorify struggle. Because in these situations, whether it's, you know, an oppressive country or a war, there are many people who don't make it through. There are many victims and casualties. But it also awakens the poet's and the prophets in us, like when you don't have everything given to you, which was true in West Berlin, and you and you have to work for that, and you have to, and your imagination gets involved, and our powers of resilience and creativity, you know, not just in creating art, but in creating our lives. When you when you are forced to turn to those things. You know, we do have a capacity to be more vibrant and, and more vivid. And, and I think there's a lot in that for us in this, in our political moment right now. I mean, I see that now. I mean, I'm somebody who feels like we should be much more aware of how we walked into this moment and its worst dynamics, how we for 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 several generations have absolutely paid homage to wealth and celebrity uh, and power, and these things are now enshrined in our highest places. Um, and we pay homage to those things on the right and on the left. And you know, we can argue about how some of its some of the variations on this are more attractive than others, and some of them are more intelligent than others. But it's the same thing. But still, you know, we don't we don't have that perspective on it, and 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 the last kind of year has just felt like a shock, right? Um, but what I see emerging, and it was already there, but what I see being activated is create is more creativity, um, and you know this this scrappiness, right? And this uh, I, I, this kind of cutting through to, you know, so what are what are we creating here? And, and, you know, there's, there's a strange way as, as creatures, as humans, that we get, get activated by the fight, <laughs> by the struggle. It makes us courageous. Can, can I push on that? That, that? that feels, in a way, too pat to me, mm-hmm. too, too okay. optimistic. So, so you said a minute ago, and, and there's something that resonates in it for me, that we have for a long time paid homage to wealth and celebrity and to power. And we walked into this in part through that cultural elevation of those dynamics. And what I see is not really a re-estimation of that. I mean, we're a week out from a huge boom of maybe Oprah should run for president. Yeah. Maybe the left should get their own, like, yeah. and I don't want to compare Oprah as a human to Donald Trump as no, a human. I but think you're they're very absolutely different. right. It's the same phenomenon, but and it, that's what I mean. It has attractive, it has unattractive faces, depending on where you sit. But it's the same. It's the same thing. And you know, I, I, I there is so much um, tremendously beautiful kinds of activism happening right now, and and um, you know, 
obviously there's a lot that is being unlocked by it, but there's also just a lot of rage. Um, The political debate is angrier and snarkier and less human. I mean, it's not been good, I think, in any, I mean, I think people always kind of complain that the political debate isn't good, but I will say personally that I think it is harder for me to mm-hmm. act in a way that I think of as like sort of being a good person in politics, right? Just like trying to be generous to others and, and listening. And I, I find it harder to be who I want to be in the political sphere. My sense is others do too. Um, yeah. I, I don't look around, to be honest, and see that, you know, Trump has created this counter movement of people saying, well, if you're going to have a cruel bullying president up there, then we are going to like really rediscover how to be like nice and try to treat other people the way we want to be treated. I mean, there is a real sense of trying to oppose things that are bad, but but also a sense that to have enough clarity to do that, to meet the emotional intensity and pitch of the moment with what is needed, that in some ways you have to, to go more into that space. You have to be able to fight Trumpism with something that is differently motivated, but but in certain ways a little bit more like Trumpism. Yeah, I I agree with you that the political sphere and the journalistic sphere, I think, are not modeling this this orientation of what are what are what are we creating. I mean, I actually think that there's that's a step back, right? I I think that the years of the Obama presidency for all the magnificence that that they held both symbolically and and practically which i think in the course of time is how that presidency will be remembered but um it also surfaced all of this unfinished work we had to do um to be worthy of of having a black president of that accomplishment and it and it was partly because of obama and partly just be, you know partly because of the invention of mobile phones with cameras, right, that 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 white people, you know, wake up in a new way to how unfinished the civil rights is. And, and people of color had been living th- with that reality. Um, and, and it hadn't been in our consciousness. We kind of thought we'd kind of cracked it. And it just needed a little more refining. You know, depending on where you sat, I was. I've been in. I've been this year in like rooms full of academics, where there's this hand wringing about you know how liberal democracy, the liberal democratic experiment was. You know, basically like it was going so well, right? And and we knew what the academy was for. And the truth is that was on, that was only true de- depending on where you sat. The, the liberal democratic experiment was was very fragile. And and what the academy for is for actually makes no sense in the lives of of actually I think most people as it's evolving, um, and and so part of what we're dealing with now is all of this being out in the open, and we can still choose to see it or not see it. But I think more people are not able to not see it. Having said that, I don't think the political realm is where that realization is happening. I, I agree. And I think, to me, what I see in the political realm and in a, in a lot of journalism is, in fact, in being so oriented towards the fight, fighting Trump that completely reactive in a way that, in fact, ends up mirroring 
the energy and the ethos of of of, of that presidency of of what in fact is is damaging to us. But just because it's not happening in politics and journalism, to me, is not to say that it's not happening. I just find people out there and leaders in spheres like education and science and the arts um, thinking in a more sweeping way about what is our culpability in what brought us to this moment and what who do we want to be as people and who do we want to be as neighbors and who do we want to be as communities and where do we need to look for leadership if the places we've looked are broken and they're not going to, right now, they are not going to walk us into the future we want to create. So I like that line that a lot of us have become reactive in a way that ends up mirroring Trump's energy. Um, not the same as Trump, but 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 I, I think there's something to that emotional pitch kind of pinging back and forth. But, but yeah. let me give a, I think, a specific place this happens that, that we've been going through in the last week just in politics and, and that I've been thinking a little bit about. So uh, one of the writers at Vox, Roman Lopez, did this really great piece uh, a couple months back on the research about talking to people who are racist, right? The research about yeah. how do you persuade someone who is racist to be less so. And one of the lessons of that research is something that does not work is calling that person a racist, like it just doesn't. Um, it's <laughs> right, a, it's right. a, it, it, it hardens their yep. positions. It makes them more defensive that it just even if what they're doing is flatly racist, it just does not. You just that, that is just not a productive response. On the other hand, it's a true one. Um, when the president of the United States is being a racist, uh, it seems like an important thing to say clearly. Uh, the New York Times just did this sort of Trump's racism, like a definitive history. We have done at Vox a number of pieces saying, look, like. Racism is at the core of this political ideology, and and it does seem to me there's something disrespectful and indecent about yeah. kind of obscuring that, of walking away from it, or or trying to treat you know the um, racist opinions with so much sympathy that you can't anymore say what they are, and so you end up in this kind of odd place where on the one hand the the approaches, the the discussion styles, it might be a little bit more of a way forward also require being a lot less morally clear about what is actually happening. And I think it's in that dialectic that a lot of people are getting trapped. Um, this, you know, if, if the president of the United States continually does things that to call them out, to, to even speak clearly about what they are, means saying things that in any context in, in American life right now would be seen as very insulting. Um, you know, that th- make people really angry to hear this said about them or about someone they like. Yeah, it's also it's, it's also hurtful. You know, we yeah. always we always we we always go to anger. It's it's so it's so hurtful. Um, what he says about people and the places they come from, it's completely, it's completely unacceptable. Right? It's heinous. But here's what I'm missing. I'm missing emotional intelligence all around. And our president, and like I, I, I'm taking my cue from Harry Potter. It's like he who shall not he who shall not be named, right? Because one thing we know about a narcissistic personality and about this narcissistic personality in particular is that he thrives on having his name repeated <laughs> and printed. And um Look, we absolutely need journalists and 
there are people who who we need, we all collectively need to be focused on what the president is saying and doing. But it's there's there's also just really clear limits again to emotional intelligence um, about what that is going to affect in his policies or in our life together. The truth is, this personality. I mean, we don't. You know, there's always. I feel like there's a bit of like to me. There's a lack of a reality base in a lot of the kind of living in this era of this president. It's kind of we know what we have here, and yet I feel like uh, I, 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 you know, you, you. I wake up, you know, every every Sunday morning. I mean, I don't, I don't read the. I read the Sunday New York Times kind of religiously on Sundays, and you know, I read I read a lot of different things through the week. But I feel like again and again, it's kind of Groundhog Day. There's like waking up, oh my gosh, like what he did today, what he said today, which is very much like what he said yesterday and a year ago and two years ago when he was running for president. And instead of kind of asking the next question, which is what is really the best way not to counter him, but to counter what we, what we reject, which is racism and alienation and bigotry alive in our country. You know, he, he ends up sucking. In some ways, Trump wins all the time because he gets all the energy. Like, I wake up in the morning and I read Twitter. Okay, this is just an example. The other day, I wake up, I get onto Twitter, and, there's, and I hadn't yet read about his tweet calling himself a genius, okay? And so I'm just puzzled because there's this widespread, very witty, energetic discussion going on, on about what a genius is. <laughs> I, I think we should be having conversations about things like what a genius is, but not in reaction to ridiculous comments. Um, in this way, he wins. He, all of this wit and energy and intelligence that is being spent on every platform um, on reacting to him rather than taking on alienation and, and, and mistrust and, yes, hatefulness that's going on in our country. And let me just say one other thing. I think we have this pathology that predates this presidency. And this, I don't know, somehow the way we set everything up as a debate and everything up as an argument, and that's how you get at the truth. You duke it out. We've, we've kind of, a long time ago, gave over our public life and our political deliberation of every important issue to the most extreme voices on either side, you know, the pro and the con. And so the part of our pathology, I think, is that we, I actually think, we do need ways to limit the damage that, you know, the, t- the terrible racists can do, including if somebody is holding high office. But a lot of us need to not be fixated on those extreme voices. We need to be doing the healing, like, in the middle of our life together, because there are people, like people I grew up with in my small town in Oklahoma, who hold reflexive positions because of the way they've been taught and they've been raised, but they, 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 they have yearnings and they have questions and they could be invited into a different space. You know, they're not hardcore. They're not lost to us. And we focus on the people who are lost to us. 
Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So I have interviewed President Obama a couple of times. And I used to, when I did that, sort of have this argument with him, actually, about polarization and, and people in political life. And, and it basically went, he had this view that people were better than their political selves seemed. And he would say, you know, if you, you, you catch them on the soccer field with their kids or out for a mm-hmm. walk or at the grocery store or in the school, we're not that divided, right? That, that was a theory of the red and blue America speech, that when you look at things as political prison, we're extremely divided. And then you, you go out into communities and you talk to people and we're not that divided. And, you know, my view is, a, yeah, but on politics, we really are that, that divided. So, you know, you can't, yeah. can't wish that away. And I've been thinking a lot about that recently because one of the things that I think, to your point, Trump does all the time is he calls us back to our political selves. He um, pulls us back to our political tribes. He reactivates senses of political threat, of fury, of anger, of defense on both sides, right, including for the people who are defending him and like him because they feel under attack. And, you know, I think there's some truth. There's some truth to what Obama said that when you, you know, experience people purely politically, you are getting obviously a more flattened version of them than they really are. And on the other hand, one of the things happening is that politics and political identity, and I think there's actually a lot of evidence on this that I've been going through, has been expanding to absorb more things. It's where you live. It's who you marry. It's what kind of television shows you like, what kind of thing, what kind of music you listen to, um, what kind of car you drive, what kind of food you eat. And so the identities are kind of stacking on top of each other. Um, they're, they're beco- we're becoming less cross-pressured. And then you have this kind of presidency that is just like constantly this like foghorn to remind you that yeah. politics is happening around you and that your, your political identity is being threatened. And as that happens, it just reinforces it every single time, right? You're, you're, you just get these like pings to like harden into your group. And I have absolutely no answer for that. <laughs> uh, I look at it and I feel yeah. it happening in me and I, I see it happening around me and I don't know what you do with it. Um, And at the same time, I mean, one answer might be, well, you try to ignore more of it, right? Did we all need to jump on the I'm a very stable genius line? That line didn't change policy. It didn't change what we knew about Donald Trump. And on the other hand, he is the president. And he's saying these things that no president has said before. And they speak to, I think, at least in my view, a kind of fundamental instability that is genuinely dangerous. And I, I... 
it, it really does feel in many ways like a question without a good answer or certainly not a good answer that I've been able to come up with. Yeah, he is the president, but we established a long time ago, like we know what we're dealing with here. Um, and I, you know, I feel like um, what I was aware of all the way through, through 2016 is that um, what we were, what we wanted to be dealing with was an election campaign and two candidates, right? And we 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 wanted, um, you know, that you know, part of what went wrong was kind of assuming that things would go the way they always do because there's a way that you know there's there's there are the there's the way you do this and the way it's done and the way you report it and all of that calculus like went out the window because what we in fact were dealing with was this human drama that had been building and you know you had you had one great columnist after the other you know confessing that they hadn't seen that there was so much fear and pain out in the country that they you know so much anger that they hadn't known about they, anger but anger is an expression of fear and pain right so this is something we also know um we can choose to ignore it, but it doesn't actually get us anywhere. Um, and what I saw is that we then, you know, all the way through, you, you had this fear and pain that had been ignored and compounded. And it was fueling uh, this horrible, horrible campaign. Um, and then the day after the election, I feel like, you know, that fear infected the other side of our political life. And so this is where, you know, the conversation you had with Obama, this is what wasn't true in his presidency. I mean, it was waiting to be true in his presidency for larger reasons than had to do with his presidency. Um, When we are all acting out of our amygdala, which is what we and a lot of us have been doing across the spectrum, we, we won't actually be our best selves, right? That, 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 you know, that good citizen, that, that person who on the sports field is, you know, ready to be a good neighbor if only they're invited to. That's true. But when we're living in fear, that's not true of us. And so this place we're in now, like I I have felt in 2016 and through 2017, we can't trust in that right now with all this fear going around. And those of us who are fortunate enough to not be on the front lines of the threats of this moment, and I and I do mean the 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 threat of bigotry and you know the da- the dangers that are there and 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 policies that are that put people in the front lines of danger. Um, I also mean the the threat of of having your the place you come from and your livelihood having the rug pulled out from under you and your children's future. Right, all of that fear and pain is going on. So we have to do active active we have to reawaken that like those of us who are fortunate enough i think have to step out and be bridge people and create connective tissue and i do see people doing this in communities as i say it's not making the news but you know people are doing it because they understand that their communities won't survive if they don't if they don't do it um you know these people like this woman i spoke with recently from the rural assembly I mean, there's this whole movement now of people who left small towns in the South, you know, kind of people like me. I'm not going back, but there are these, you know, fantastic people, a couple generations younger than me who are 
who leave to get that education they wanted. Their parents actually want them to get away if they can. And they're going home to be sources of repair. And just last night, I was with this amazing Haitian-American um, uh, f- musician, um, Natalie Joachim, who lives in Brooklyn, but is, is you know, and again, like in this week where Haiti has been in the headlines in the most horrible way because of what was said in the White House, which was perfectly in character. Um, and, you know, she's talking about all these Haitian Americans. And this is this predated last week's remarks, right? Who are going, who are going back home, like to rebuild the places they come from. There's something in there that that I want to talk to you about, particularly around fear mm-hmm. and pain. And this is something you've written about before, but but it, but it feels important to me. So we have a tendency mm-hmm. in politics to take people's fear and pain. I should say, particularly, we have it in the media to take people's fear and pain and materialize it. We are very comfortable talking about people being angry because wages are stagnating, which they are, and people are mm-hmm. rightly angry about it. We have a tendency to talk to take people's sort of expressions of rage and look at, you know, what is the economy in their area like? What is the labor market in their area like? Yeah, what are jobs right. like? What are, you know, and we have this set of indicators that are sane and are sanitized and and are also real, right? You don't want to take that away. And then there's this feeling of, well, if we just get all of them moving in the right direction at the right time, you know, we won't have these problems. And then there are all these sources of fear and pain that are harder to talk about in some ways because they're harder to measure, in other ways because they are politically more difficult to talk about, right? Racism, I think, is just one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, cultural anxiety that, that people who look like you are and are like you are losing their, their foothold in America. But also there's this other stuff that just doesn't feel like the realm of politics but, but seems important, loneliness, Loneliness is a very powerful, I mean, it changes your health, it changes your politics, Um, just like senses of social fragmentation. And there's all these sources of fear and pain that not only do we not know how to fix, but I don't think we really know how to talk about. Um, Trump, I think, has a very good intuitive sense of places where people are angry and particularly places where they're angry and a certain kind of person and hasn't been able to express it publicly or hasn't had a champion for it publicly. He's been very effective at that. But I find that there is this pretty one dimensional response a lot of the time where people you know, are saying, well, you know, if we had only implemented my preferred economic and healthcare policies and none of this would be happening. And I'm not saying it wouldn't help, right? I think if we implemented my preferred economic and healthcare policies, it would be good. But I do think that we have a pretty limited set of problems we know how to take seriously in politics. And it isn't clear to me that what we're trying that when we're trying to respond to, to, to people's sense of well being, which is very subjective, that we know how to do it or even really how to talk about it. And this is something yeah. that you've written about. You've written a bit about in your own career making this choice between you're working for the diplomatic mission in, in Germany and, you know, mm-hmm. sort of in a wonkish space and you were hawkish in your foreign policy, you said, and, you know, talked about salt treaties. And then there seemed to be yeah. all these spaces of life that none of these questions were able to address or answer and that you wanted to, to take your career in that direction instead, um, in this direction where it wasn't all discussions of facts and figures and charts and appendice tables. And I'm I'm curious to hear how you see that divergence now in the culture. I'm curious if you, if it has to be a choice like that, and just what you've learned about the about the wages of making a different one. 
Yeah. I, I think what you're talking about, or the way I think about what you're talking about, is, is the difference between um, facts and kind of, you know, quantifiable metrics, which are, you know, they're kind of corollaries, right? Like numbers and facts, they go together for us. And that and truth. And I, I think, like, as I've said about this moment in terms of how we walked into it, I actually think we've been building to a truth crisis of equating facts and numbers and truth. And so now it's full-blown. And I think that's partly what our president speaks to in, in people. And, and he speaks to, like, the truth. So so the truth of a human being and the truth of a community and, I, you know, the language of well-being that you use, like the truth of well-being or the truth of despair has always been it 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 does like facts are are relevant and and numbers are relevant but they're not they don't add up to the truth of a human being or of of well-being um or of of healing or of the fullness of our possibility and um and that's what we're we're confronting that our our measures our our metrics are and you're you're right our what we are skilled at speaking about is too small and so you know this is where i say like this is one of the great kind of existential moral challenges of our time which is a challenge for journalism and a challenge for politics and it's not going to be mastered by this generation of politicians but i think the you know generations coming up these these young people who are going to, into politics now to heal it. Um, it it also has to do with a reckoning that, and, and the, you know, I was a cold warrior, right? So like, I find myself so shocked to be saying these words, but it has to do with a reckoning that we need to have with um, with 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 how we have allowed you know the our our faith and i use that word very intentionally our faith in the market you know we left our faith in god behind as a nation a long time ago but we 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 exchanged it for a faith in the market um in 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 capitalism in in material things that can be measured um and you know that was what was so interesting to me in berlin because you had west berlin which was this um iconic, free, capitalist, democratic place. And you had East Germany, which was this iconic, you know, this kind of um, model uh, communist city. And and you could speak about the... You, you could absolutely compare the, e- the economics and all these facts and all these, all these things you can measure. And it wasn't telling the human story. And what it wasn't ever getting at in either place was how people create lives of meaning, how they create spaces of intimacy, um, how they how they work on their dignity. Um, that in some sense we all have to carve out, you know, certainly it works together with our environment, but in the end it's something that we that also has to come from inside us. You know, Hannah Arendt talked about, you know, loneliness, as you say. Like, you know, we used to be able to speak about these things. And Hannah Arendt was not a, like, a religious, religious figure. But, she, you know, she said loneliness, loneliness, loneliness is the breeding ground of terror. 
And we don't have ways, we don't, I think the language I'm using a lot is moral imagination. Like, we have to figure out how to, we need a vocabulary of moral imagination, which, which is not going to be about religious values, although it probably will have theologians and spiritual teachers in it. But, but politicians need to have moral imagination, and journalists need to have moral imagination. When one of the things that I struggle with in that mm-hmm. and and looking at your career is that it sometimes feels like these are these branching pathways that, you know, you sort of if you want to address those topics, you want to address those questions, you you go in this other direction away from politics. You you, you talk to spiritual seekers, you, you know, enter into another discourse, a discourse that has always been there, a discourse that is important, a discourse that may intersect with politics, but 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 is separate from it. So I'd, I'd like to hear you say more about what it would mean for journalists or for politicians, for people who are in the day-to-day political scrum mm-hmm. to write, speak, act, work, inquire with what you call moral imagination. How do you, how do you merge those spheres? Mm-hmm. Well, for, in politics, I, I think we are... Like our national discourse tends to be so focused on politics at the highest level, and that right now is the most dysfunctional, one of the most dysfunctional places in our midst altogether. But, you know, there's also this renaissance now of local government, and your mayors are cool. And so I actually think that politicians um, – I was reading this analysis the other day of, you know – and this has occurred to me, like, you know, we we might be able to analyze what's falling apart right now in, in very simple terms as much as we're good at the complex terms. And that, you know, there's just some absurdity at this point with this many people, um, with this complexity of all of our systems um, to have like one, you know, that there's some, some way in which like national government may have just, it, 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 it just almost just doesn't make sense that it's, it, that the complexity um has outstripped the office. So, so, but, but the truth is that there's, you know, closer to the ground, I think local politicians in many places um, are actually, are, do have moral imagination, you know, and they are actually responding to what's going on in people's lives and being stewards of that. Um, in, in journalism... Give me more specifics there. Who are you talking about? What are they doing? I'm I'm not yet where the line moral imagination calls up something specific for me. Help me get there. Well, I mean, we have a new. In, I live in Minnesota, and we have a we have an African American mayor of St. Paul, Minnesota, for the first time. And he, you know, here's the thing: we're not we are not perfection is not possible for human beings, and so change is slow and it's fitful, and it, you know, that long arc of the moral universe it it doesn't it just like time itself it doesn't just flow forwards <laughs> it loops around um i mean i don't know here's another example my son is crazily has you know for me for my life trajectory has gone back to the university of oklahoma and he's working for a young a democratic uh representative from oklahoma city who's 26 years old who is, you know, has identified all kinds of things, including the fact that, you know, teachers are paid the least in the, in the nation, I think, in, in, in the state of Oklahoma. And he's, he's working on those things. I mean, that, that actually is, moral imagination is about serving um, where people are in pain. 
and and um I think you're asking me though you're wondering like what do you do differently that's not about policies is that what you're asking yeah or, or just um, yeah. yeah what does it look like what is what does a mm-hmm. politics of moral imagination look like that we don't mm-hmm. see now oh, I mean here's another example you know the the mayor of Louisville Kentucky came in a few years ago and said after he was elected and said and started talking about compassion and how this is something, I mean, you know, again, this is an element. If we really care about not just what we can measure, but how real change happens, like evolutionary change, new realities, transformed realities, compassion is something we have to cultivate in ourselves. We, we have to be better neighbors. Um, and so he started talking about compassion and really raise the question, what would it mean to be a compassionate city? And has involved the chief of police and the entire educational system and um, the religious community and has planted something that is going to far outlive his administration, right? And so then that's the challenge, right? Does that community pick that up and grow it. And, you know, here's the other thing about moral imagination and also about the moment we inhabit, which it, it's not anymore just about what our leaders do and where they take us, right? And this is also the way our lives work now, right? This is the way the internet works. So, you know, part of what this decline of the places we've looked for leadership calls us to is what we needed to be doing any anyway which is we we have to we have to be creating these new realities we have to be carrying them forward where we live like close to the ground um but like this this compassion thing in louisville is also like it has they're working with uva they have they're actually and there's really amazing science now um about how we are in fact hardwired for something like compassion as we are hardwired for something like language but how do we learn language? We don't actually learn language when we go to school. We learn language because people speak around us. And that is also how we learn personal virtue and how we learn a skill like compassion, which, I mean, you know, you couldn't argue now in this world we inhabit now with all of this, right, all of the things we're talking about, this, this racist language right out on the surface of our life together. You could not argue that something like the cultivation of compassion among citizens would not be meaningful. Something that I'm hearing in a lot of your answers here actually has to do with the scale of community. Mm. You're sort of moving towards localities, towards cities, towards smaller groups. And, and, and I wonder that, you know, you, you mentioned national politics maybe just being too complicated, but also it's a very, very big community with very different kinds of people who most of us don't know. And then there's Twitter and social media and cable news, which are constantly beaming the worst of (laughs) these other communities into our uh, brainstem. And and I wonder a bit about that. I wonder a bit about how our, the size of the communities that we're operating in are not the communities that we have the hardware or the context to understand clearly. And I, I, I'm curious if you have mm-hmm. thoughts on that, thoughts on 
this question of how do you construct a community or focus on a community that is of a size that as a human being, you can deal with it compassionately. Yeah. And, and here's where I think um, I, I tend to have a I tend to take a long view of time and think about change in, in generational terms, which is actually how change happens. And, and actually, um, that's it's a it's actually a more relaxing way to live right now. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> um, to not be so caught up in the moment. Like, you know, what happens tomorrow or what was tweeted just now is the be all and end all. Because it's not. It's just not. So, like, that is actually not, not reality-based. I guess I'm asking if maybe to sharpen that question somewhat, is part of the problem we're having that our – the communities we're dealing with in politics, in communication technologies – have just become big and sprawling and contextless in a way that is bad for our tribe, small group, tribal evolved brains. Yeah. So here's so so here's what I was gonna say. I so I think it's it's also helpful to step back a little bit and realize like there are there are all we live. You could not argue that nineteen. 18 was better than tw- than 2018, right? Like re- literally, you know, world wars, global depressions that we call depressions, genocide. Um, you you couldn't argue that 1985 was, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but what I do think is unusual about this moment we inhabit, and it's it's useful to keep this in mind, is like there are many. There are all these tectonic shifts going on at the same time. So, you know, it can feel like, I think that, you know, whose who's president can feel apocalyptic, more apocalyptic. Well, I mean, you know, it does, but there is this, you know, the, did you know that the definition of the word apocalyptic is uncovering, which is actually very apt um, and uncovering. Um but I think it, it feels worse because at the very same time and feeding into that and playing into the, the, the drama and the crisis of politics is just that um, globalization and especially our technologies, which are, you know, which globalization, which fed globalization, are literally shifting the ground beneath our feet so that remaking the meaning and the nature of making and leading and learning and belonging and making the way we've structured organizations including like civic just basic civic uh you know fundamental elements of our life together like schools and healthcare and prisons it, they suddenly they make no sense and so and and also to realize that it is actually in the human brain this kind of uncertainty of just living with nothing making sense anymore is just about the most stressful place we can be in. Um, we actually know, and I think this this is a little bit why it comes back to you know the the vitality sometimes of living in a place that is in true crisis or, you know, the way people talk about, you know, living through a war, if you live through it. Um, there, w- what we, we know, actually, when we know what our real fight is, we know, we, we, we know how to fight. We know how to fight. We know how to flee. We don't know how to live with this kind of mass 
uncertainty and like the the falling away of everything we thought we knew. So, you know, again, I think that's kind of the context in which I try to figure out, like, can we find the ground beneath our feet? And to me, actually, one of the most fascinating things about globalization is, as we see it now, as it's kind of coming full circle, that it hasn't done away with our need for particular identities or for home, right? I mean, it's it's not... um, it, it's it's like you know local languages are reemerging, and you have all these. So I and I, I think there's something beautiful about that, and I think there's something human about it, and we can figure out how that can be healthy rather than just more sectarianism. But boy, we're in the middle. We are in the middle of a time of really significant change, and then added to that, we do have these kind of big existential challenges before us. I mean, just the ecological challenge, just take that one. So that's all of that. We're, we need to be really kind of kind to ourselves and each other sometimes about all of this. So you've traversed a lot more of this ground than than I have or, or, or than, than most of us have. So I'm curious if, if you're sort of someone like me and your kind of background and approach to world is a little bit more I don't know, in, in, in the wonkish, uh, materialist, cerebral space. <laughs> what's, your, what's your moral imagination reading or listening list? Who are the, the thinkers or the speakers who you think speak to folks like us? Like where, where, where would you tell people to start if they wanted to try to expand the way they're thinking a bit? Including with the interviews you've done, by the way. I used to say, you know, when I started out this the show, I had this big long list of people I definitely wanted to interview one day. And and I've gotten to quite a few of them. What's happened though, like people ask me all the time, like who is the person, you know, who's who's your who's on your dream list? And I have less of a dream list because my what has been so interesting and exciting to realize being able to do this over a period of time is 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 actually being like looking for the person who's going to surprise me, um, not going for the obvious characters. Looking for, you know, every sphere, every sphere, whatever, all these many professions we have, and these, uh, you know, every sphere: religion, education, technology. Like in in every area of human endeavor, there are people within those areas of endeavor who are just rock stars for the people who do that thing um, and completely unknown outside it, even if, in our age of, you know, celebrity. And and we tend kind of culturally, I feel, to be focused on, well, we are, we're, we're focused on celebrity and we, we tend to be focused on people who make make of themselves celebrities or who who become celebrities in whatever way. And I'm I'm so interested in looking for those people just below the surface. I mean, this is an example, and this may not be a great example, but just recently um, I interviewed Kevin Kelly, who, you know, again, I mean, you know Wired Magazine, and a lot of people in the world we inhabit know Kevin Kelly or know Wired Magazine. But, but he's not a household name, and he's somebody who's been living with our technological evolution wisely for a long time. And it's, you know, it's... It's actually like so wonderful. I'm I'm looking for wisdom. That's what I'd say. 
and I and I think and wisdom is everywhere, but it's it is it's below that radar. So what I would say is, you know, I'm less and less looking in one place or another place. I'm looking for the I'm listening for the voices and looking for the people who are actually changing lives um, and and generally so busy doing that that they don't have time to become celebrities or to hire uh, PR. How do you find these people when when you're looking for people <laughs> on your show? Yeah. How, how do you find people who they're not the biggest name, they're not the celebrity uh-huh. yet, they're the person doing the work maybe you'll know in 10 years? Um, yeah. W- w- what is we your search partly, process? We partly find it by by people giving us ideas. We find it a bit. I mean, I'm always reading widely. I'll tell you something I'm really enjoying these days is the Guardian long reads, Guardian Weekly, mm-hmm. um, which is is different. It really is quite different from the American approach to journalism. And it's not the Guardian I remember from being in Europe in the 80s. I actually feel like the Guardian is trying to figure out this question of what it means to have moral, imagine, moral imagination as a as a news organization that is also adhering to, you know, best practices and the highest standards of journalism as we've known it. Um, actually the long reads section that they have, like they, they do these alongside covering daily news. They do these really, you know, it's a regular place for these really thought provoking pieces about things like globalization and how it, why it happened the way it did and why it, is full of so much wreckage right now and that that we might have seen this but it's it's not a it's not a political it's not like a left-wing anti-capitalist screed it's just really good journalism digging into something with a long view of time um i think medium is a good place for um finding thoughtful voices uh Again, like kind of voices of moral imagination in all kinds of spheres. I feel like, of course, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a huge thing, and I, I find they have a good, for some reason, they have a good algorithm for like delivering to me things that I'm going to find interesting. So I think on there, the the trick is to, to seek these things out, to like them, and then they send you more of it in a in a thoughtful way. I don't do Facebook. I've never done Facebook. I mean, I'm not like against it, but it's I I just it was not for me. Um, I actually I actually love Twitter. I'm not I don't I don't do a lot on Twitter, but I go there to interact with people. And something interesting to me about Twitter, of course, Twitter is just practically synonymous with Trump now. Um, it, you know, in the way we talk about it, but to to me, Twitter is a really wonderful example of how we shape these platforms um you know my my twitter feed is full of poetry and wisdom which in fact always have happened with compressed uh, disciplined use of words right i mean you know you can say that it's of course it's become a perfect platform for for saying inflammatory things um it's also a perfect platform for wisdom and poetry and that's how a lot of people use it um, so, like, that's a choice. Like, that, that's, that's up to us to do. Is that helpful? Yeah, that is. 
And so then the, I'll ask you one other question, which I, I don't think you're mm-hmm. going to like, but is the question we, we always use at the end here, which is what are, what are three books that change the way you think that you would recommend to others? Okay, so I have, I have a few. Um, I want to mention one that's just about to come out here in the States, and I, I, I bought it um, in the UK, but it's just about to be in a U.S. edition um, from John O'Donohue, who is an Irish poet and philosopher and theologian. And he, he died a few years ago, and, and actually I, I happened to do one of the last interviews with him. And probably if there's a, an on-being that is like greatest hits, <laughs> John O'Donohue is r- right near the top. Um, and it's a new book, and I think it's called Walking the Pastures of Wonder. And, you know, he wrote other books, and he wrote books of blessings, and he wrote um, about friendship, and he wrote he writes about crossing life's thresholds worthily. That's one thing he talked to me about when I talked to him. And you know what is true of lives is true of societies. This is something that we don't. I feel like we don't take seriously enough. Um, even when you talk about something like, you know, if we put a lot of things through that lens, like what, you know, what is, how fact is, mere fact is not enough to capture the truth. Um, I mean, it's true, it's true in life, it's true in societies. And, you know, I feel like we are at a threshold culturally. And how do we cross this worthily? Um, it's a good question we could be working with. When you say, when you ask about moral imagination, I think moral imagination, uh, is as much about the quality of our questions as it is about the quality of our answers. And, and you know, this is another thing. We, we think questions are things that have to be met with solutions. And right now we're in this place of tectonic shift where we, 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 we need to be asking the best questions we can, you know, like as scientists do, and pursue those questions. And, and that's one way we cross these thresholds worthily. So this book, this new book is actually, it's John O'Donohue in conversation with a journalist friend of his in, in Ireland. It's just a really relevant book for this moment we inhabit and kind of that fullness of the truth of us. I um, A book of poetry of Rilke. Rilke is an important companion to me. And there's a beautiful I don't think I, I discovered Rilke in German, and I don't think most translations do him justice. But there's an incredible translation by two women, by Joanna Macy, who is a Buddhist teacher, and um, Anita Barrows, who's a psychologist, and they had this incredible translation of Rilke, um, and it's it's Rilke's I think it's called Rilke's Book of Hours, Love Poems to God, and you know Rilke also was from Rilke was a turn of century person like us too. He and and you think about the early years of 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 the twentieth century and and all that was to come, and Rilke inhabited. You know, he wasn't really German. He was Central European, and he belonged to a world that actually no longer exists. But what happened then is 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 in us now. You know, there are ways in which things were happening then are just coming to full fruition now. So I feel like in Rilke, there's it's beautiful, but it also evokes, um, you know, being alive in a, in a time and in a, in a turn of century time. Um, and then I guess the other one I might mention would be Parker Palmer's book, Let Your Life Speak. Uh, that's just, that's a Quaker phrase. 
And again, there's this paradox of living in this globalized moment in this incredibly complex society and how even and especially in these moments, like how we, what we do with our lives and what we do with our words has ultimate importance. Those are great. Thank you so much, Krista Tippett. Ah, thank you. Thank you to Krista for being here. That was a, a, a wonderful conversation. Thank you to my producer, Peter Leonard uh, and Jillian Weinberger. Thank you to all of you for tuning in to the Ezra Klein Show every week. Uh, I'm grateful you give me a space to have these kinds of conversations. I hope they're a value to you. And we will be back next week. <laughs>